Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Medical Aid in Dying, which is also known as MAID, is a practice in which a physician provides a competent adult with a terminal illness with a prescription for a lethal dose of a drug at the request of the patient. The patient will intend to use that to end his or her life. MAID currently is legal in nine states and the District of Columbia. Today, my guest is Reverend Michael Morse, a retired minister with the United Church of Christ. He will talk about advanced care planning and end-of-life options, including medical aid in dying. He will also explain what it is and what it is not. He will talk also about end-of-life options in states that do not allow medical aid in dying. So welcome, Reverend Morris, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be a participant in the very, very important work that you're doing. Well, I'm glad that you're here, Reverend Morris. So let's begin by getting an overview of what we're going to be talking about and step back a bit and begin by asking you, what is meant by the concept of advanced care planning? Why is it needed? Well, I suppose we're a culture that, uh, that wants to be spontaneous. Unfortunately, sometimes that doesn't work. So advanced care planning is really a process, I think. I like to think of it in terms of a process of putting in, in place important items that are all about your values and your preferences. It's, it's really prodding you to ask the question, what is, what is important to me? And particularly, what is important to me uh, in case something dire happens uh, in my life unexpectedly, such as a stroke or a heart attack? Uh, so when I am all of a sudden incapacitated and um, maybe can't make decisions for myself, what do, I, what do I want to happen? So, for instance, I, I have um, a sister-in-law, Barbara, who is very beloved, lives in Michigan. She is 94 years old, and she is uh, not rabidly independent, but She's independent. She lives alone. She's got a few family members close by, but mostly they're far away. So Barbara has just recently, at my prodding, uh, gone through this process of uh, advanced care planning. And um, she, she does not want anything done to her in case something happens that is going to prolong her life. She does not want, here's the value, she does not want to be dependent upon anybody else for, for her care. So if something happens, she doesn't want anything done to help her live any longer if, if, if she is going to die. It's that kind of process. Advanced care planning is important, not just for the person, it's important for other people. It's important for uh, people in your family, like a spouse or other family members, as it is in Barbara's family, as it is in my own family. I can't tell you 
how frustrating it is, uh, and I've seen this happen too many times, uh, for somebody to be in, let's say, a car accident and be unconscious so can't make any decisions, and the rest of the family has nary a clue about what this person wants. It hasn't been communicated. Nothing has been written down. So it's, it's an important process so that people know what's up. It's getting ahead of the curve, so to speak. Okay, well, let's talk specifically then about some aspects of advanced care planning. What you have described in so far as your sister sounds like an advanced directive. Would you agree? Yes, it is. It is exactly that. It's an advanced directive. So it's it's putting in place, put, putting in writing uh, for several different people, and I'll get to that in a moment. But it's putting in writing um, those those things that are important to you, um, and usually the process um, in, involves designating a particular person, uh, usually a spouse or uh, a family member, an adult, uh, an adult child, a son or a daughter, um, or somebody who is extremely close to you, and designating that person as an agent. This person is called an agent. So this person then uh, has the ability to make decisions on your behalf should you not be able to. All right. The other two parts of the advanced directive have to do with the preferences that you have um, in relationship to three or four different scenarios, three usually, uh, having to do uh, with where you are on on a scale of... uh, (laughs) You know, whether there's a possibility of you recovering uh, your health um, back to the point where you started or whether that is seriously in question or whether you are terminally ill or whether it has been determined by doctors, by a hospital probably, uh, that you are, are never going to be able to recover. So what do you want to have done? Uh, regarding those three things. There is, there is, and I can hold it up here, there is uh, what's called an advanced medical directive worksheet, which lays out these three categories that I just talked about. Um, and you can, check, you can check these off as you go through the process. Um, you, don't, you, you don't want this, or you do want that, or you are undecided. You have those three options, and there are the three different categories that you you go down. So my sister-in-law, Barbara, went through this list as she was filling out her directive. Now let me talk about the the agent a little bit, because this this person then has the, the power, you've given them the power in your advanced directive to make decisions on your behalf so this person can decide, you know, whether or not you want to be intubated, whether you want uh, a ventilator, for instance, um, and your agent can make those decisions on on your behalf in the ad, in the advent that there is a crisis of some sort, uh, say an accident or a serious stroke or a heart attack, and you are not and you are not able to make decisions. So. Your, your agent, however, is not responsible for any of the medical expenses. Let me make that, that clear. So there's no liability here. Um, so you will look at all of these options as they are laid out in the worksheet and check them off uh, in terms of your treatment, and then your agent can make decisions. Um, based on that. So um, it, it's interesting that this worksheet uh, comes with the advanced directive material. Uh, people in Maryland and Virginia 
in West Virginia can, can go on the internet and you can look up what your state, what your particular state recommends uh, for an advanced directive. Uh, I have my own right here in front of me from the state of Maryland, which I filled out uh, four years ago or so. And so it's, it's detailed, it's all, all signed and um, witnessed. So Mike, explain what is a physician order for scope of treatment? It's an initiative. I know sometimes it's called POST, or sometimes it's also called medical orders for life-sustaining treatment or MOLST. When are these forms used? So this is a step up from the regular advanced directive. This is a more narrowly defined document as opposed to being generalized, I suppose. And this covers some of the same territory as advanced directive, but it has to do only with life-sustaining uh, decisions that you, you want to have made. So this deals with CPR, with uh, palliative care, uh, su- support, that, that kind of thing. It, it addresses very, very specifically um, issues of intubation, and uh, and ventilators, that sort of thing. It's interesting that many people during this COVID crisis that we've been in were uh, instituted their most form or their pulsed or, or scope, whatever it happens to be called in your state. Uh, and both C. Raven and I did that because we didn't want to be put on a ventilator. So that's that's the difference. Now, another term that we here often is end-of-life options. Is that something different? Yeah. End-of-life options makes some of the, of the specific issues that I touched on rather more specific. It, it asks the question then very specifically of what we, of what we want to happen to us uh, when, when we know that we are actually dying. So we begin to look at, at options, uh, the possibilities that, that, are, that are out there for us, and we can talk about that in, in a moment. Okay, and that is a good segue into what I mentioned in the introduction about the concept of medical aid in dying, which is sometimes called MAID, if I'm assuming that that's correct. I just want to verify, first of all, what it is, and then... There seems to be many different terms. As I prepared questions, I saw the word death with dignity, maybe other terms. So give us an overview of what that is. The broad concept is death with dignity. And medical aid in dying really indicates a a choice. And I emphasize the word choice. That is very basic to this. The choice that is offered by legislation in uh, 10 jurisdictions, nine states and DC, uh, for people to avail themselves when they are diagnosed with a terminal illness to end their lives with medication. Dignity, I suppose, is a word that uh, is, is somewhat ambiguous. Each person probably defines that in their, in their own way. Uh, but death with dignity in this concept, in, in, in this matrix of this general framework, uh, refers to the option given to people with this legislation to end their life on their own terms rather than allowing a disease, say stage five cancer, for instance, to, to run its total course. So basically what the person is doing is choosing the timing for their death. And it has to be, well, we'll talk more about it in a, in a moment. Yeah, and, and the other terms that are used for this are assisted dying or physician-assisted dying. Those are two other terms that are generally used. And sometimes we hear the phrase that this is euthanasia or assisted suicide. How would you respond to that? Uh, It is neither. Euthanasia 
is generally understood as the deliberate killing of a patient by a physician using a lethal injection of medication. And this is expressly, expressly prohibited in all of the legislation from Oregon on. I can say more about this, but it is written right into the legislation that this is forbidden and nothing shall be interpreted in this process as being euthanasia. Suicide is almost a singular event, almost always. Um, both C. Raven and I have done extensive writing about this in, in the past. Um, it is a disease usually associated with depression and is predominant in younger people, generally speaking. And though there may be depression associated with a terminal illness, the issue here is that the disease, the disease, whatever it happens to be, is doing the killing. And that is causing the depression. It is not the other way around that the depression is causing the disease. That's nonsense. And I don't know why it is so difficult for critics of, of medical aid in dying to get their heads around this. The other problem with using the term suicide is that it, 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 it is injurious to, to people who have experienced uh, the phenomenon of suicide in their own extended family, as I have, um, two, two of my two of persons in my extended family have committed suicide, and it hurts me. Uh, it hurts people like Jamie Raskin, whose son Tommy uh, committed suicide. People are familiar with that, I hope. Uh, to to have to 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 have to to make their way around all of the nonsensical talk uh, about suicide associated with this when this is really an issue of mental illness. And people with mental illness are expressly prohibited from taking part in medical aid in dying. Uh, this is, isn't the place to engage in a lengthy discussion of suicide, I suppose. Um, but let's be careful about how we throw that term around. It can be very, very hurtful. Okay, well, let's move on to, I mentioned it in my introduction, and you had also said that there are uh, nine states and the District of Columbia. Can you tell us which states do allow medically-assisted deaths? Yeah, it's West Coast, East Coast, basically. You go down the West Coast, it's Washington, Oregon, uh, California, and we can slip Montana in there, and then moving over a little bit, Colorado and New Mexico, and then go out in the ocean to Hawaii, and then go to the East Coast. We have Vermont, Maine, and New Jersey, and then, of course, the District of Columbia. Okay. Well, let's talk about what I see a lot is the Oregon model. Explain to us what is the Oregon model, and because I'm specifying a state, and we just talked about states, do individuals who decide that they want to be involved with MAID, do they have to live in one of these states for a particular uh, length of time? Help us understand what it is within each of these states and the residence requirements. You have to be a resident of the state. And uh, I think the length of time varies from state to state, but basically, yes, you have to be a resident. The, the Oregon legislation is really the model for all of the others. And uh, I'm, I'm familiar with California a little bit. Um, the, the wording in the different states is, it varies a little bit, but, but basically it's all the same thing. And the Oregon model is the one that it, it, it is the model because it has uh, been in place for many, many years. Uh, it's been revised a few times. Um, 
like taking the word suicide out of, in 2006, taking the word suicide out of the legislation. Anyway, it has worked flawlessly, I think, for over 30 years. And uh, you do have to be a resident of, of the state, and you have to be mentally competent and physically able to administer the medication yourself. The doctor can't do it, your spouse can't do it, your friends can't do it, members of your family can't do it. You've got to be able to do it yourself. And finally, you have to have a diagnosis certified by two doctors independently certifying that you have a terminal illness and it has to be within a six-month framework. That's the time frame. Okay, and that six-month framework, is the doctor usually able to, or the two doctors that are involved with this process, how is that determined? Uh, Because sometimes terminal illness, someone can live longer than expected. That would have to be pretty clear. Would you agree? I agree, and it does need to be it does need to be pretty clear, and I, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't know. I'm not the medical expert on this. I don't, I don't know if there have been cases in which uh, this has not panned out for people. Uh, I, I'm not aware of any cases. Certainly, there have been none in the state of Oregon where this, where this has happened, but. Um, Usually, uh, it can be pretty well determined, uh, especially in the case of cancer, for instance. Uh, we, we doctors have a way of 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 knowing uh, within uh, a time frame of the six months whether whether it's accurate. If if they can't if they can't make that diagnosis then the person can't participate in in medical aid and dying um, I mean that's this is one of one of the one of the rules and it can't be broken okay and I wanted to just step back uh, you had said that the individual had to live in the state that allows medical aid in dying is it possible for someone who decides that they, want to do that, that they could move to one of the states? And if so, is there a residency requirement that they would have to live there X number of months or years before they could use medical aid in dying? No, I don't think so. I think in most, in most of these states, and I, I may be mistaken on some of it, but I know in the state of Oregon, for instance, you can you can move there and you can establish residency if you have if if you're lucky enough to have the ability to do that. Uh, and what what you will need in order to do that is uh, you know you you have you have to have a resident uh, resident residency and you would have to have such things as uh, proof that you are a resident with some kind of certification that you own a house or you are renting renting a house and that that is official and that you have documents to show that and you have utility bills and and that kind of thing in order to document it so so you could theoretically do that okay well we're going to take a short break right now in case you tuned in late we're talking with Reverend Michael Morse a retired minister with the United Church of Christ and we're talking about medical aid in dying. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. 
Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. Our guest today is Reverend Michael Morris, a retired minister with the United Church of Christ, and the topic is medical aid in dying. And we covered some basic elements before uh, the break, but Reverend Morris, we wanted to get into the specifics about medical aid in dying. I think our listeners would like to know, is, is this safe? How does this protect the patient? What, what safeguards are in place to make sure that, that the patient's decision process in doing this and making this decision, they're, they're protected? So give us an overview of, of this aspect of medical aid in dying. Oh, yes. And I would say, my, oh, my, the, the, the safeguards are all over the place in this legislation. It is absolutely safe. Uh, and, I, and I mentioned some of the requirements uh, as we began to talk about this a moment ago. But first of all, the patient himself or herself has to make a request verbally and in writing, both and. And I would say this process gets repeated again. So the oral communication and the written communication are both verified later on. There's a a time span that is involved in this, usually around two weeks or so. Uh, so you you have to make this request verbally and then in writing. And, and this is certified uh, by the doctors who are involved in this process. So then, as now I've suggested that doctors are involved, there have to be two doctors. Uh, one can be your primary physician. The other one can be maybe another doctor that you go to for some kind of special treatment, or if you don't have one, you, you, the, your primary physician has to suggest another doctor that you go to. And those two doctors, both independently, and that's crucial, independently, have to do two things. They, they have to determine that, you're, that you have a disease or a condition that is terminal. So they have to agree on the diagnosis. That's number one. And number two, they have to agree that this terminal condition uh, is going to end your life within a time span of six months. That's, that's crucial. Um, the other important variable in this is that you have the opportunity at any point along the line, and I emphasize this, any point along the line to, to stop this, to stop the process. You can rescind your request for medical aid and dying. Um, and then finally, and maybe most important, if there is any sign of coercion in this process, at any point, by any person, by a religious institution, by a family member, by, by anybody, everything is off. It, the process gets stopped. There cannot be any coercion at all. So these safeguards are, are all there. And you will notice, of course, uh, the people who are, who are automatically eliminated from this, this whole process so any, anybody who is not physically able to administer the medication is not eligible to be part of this program at all. Anybody with a mental illness is automatically eliminated. Anybody who can't make the decision for themselves is automatically eliminated. So anybody with dementia or Alzheimer's is automatically eliminated from this program. One question I also wanted to ask in connection with the physician, might there be, say, for example, you had just given the example of a a person's primary care physician uh, and maybe someone else who was treating this individual for another condition, 
what happens if those one or both of those physicians is opposed to the concept of medical aid in dying? Is there any way that an individual could find a physician in, say, a death with dignity state who would prescribe the life-ending medications? How would that work? Finding a physician is not as difficult, I think, as it may seem, particularly right now. I think this might have been true um, 15 years ago or so, but it probably isn't right now. If your physician is uh, is opposed to this, you can, you can ask him or her for a referral to another physician who, who is in favor of it. And, and, uh, and go and go from there. It's really not as hard as uh, it may sound at first blush. The other thing that I would say is that polls now indicate uh, rather conclusively that the majority of doctors in the United States are in in favor of this program, even even those in states where there is where there is no legislation. The American Medical Association used to be opposed to it. Um, they, they have a reputation for being very uh, careful, very traditional, and they were opposed to it. They are now uh, espousing a neutral stand on this issue, but the majority of doctors are in favor of it. So I don't think it's, it's that hard to, 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 to find someone who is in favor of this and who will assist you in the process. And does the patient then choose the place to take the medication that has been prescribed by the physician? Yes. Um, obviously, there are mitigating circumstances. If you're, if you're, if you're not physically uh, able, if you can't walk, for instance, uh, probably that rules out a hiking trail or, uh, you know, a, a vast park where you want to gather people around or something like that. But yes, you can choose the place. And most often, the place that is chosen, no surprise, I guess, is is usually one's home, close to to friends and, and family. Okay. And I just wanted to reiterate, you said it a little earlier, but if a patient decides uh, they change their mind about this, maybe they even have the medication already. Uh, what happens? Anything in particular, or is it just that the whole process just stops? The whole process is stopped. And if they do have the medication at, at that point, and that would be the, the uh, probably the last point in the process where they actually have the medication, uh, that medication then needs to be disposed of and you and there you know the doctors the doctors who are involved in this process would uh would initiate that part and so the the medication would be disposed of very very carefully okay i wanted to ask you about if a patient is already in hospice and lives in a state that authorizes medical aid in dying my assumption, and I need clarification from you, is that there's a certain process within hospice as to the care of the patient. But if they are in a state, if the patient is in a state that authorizes medical aid in dying, would the patient then be able to choose that option as part of the hospice care? How, how would that work? Let me say two two things. I hope I hope very very carefully so that people understand. A patient in hospice can most certainly uh, choose medical aid in dying, and indeed, uh, the majority, the vast majority of people who have chosen medical aid in dying are also in hospice. But then let me add very, very quickly, so as not to confuse people, hospice itself uh, takes a neutral stand on, well, on a whole, on a host of issues, but particularly this one. So they are neither an advocate nor an opponent, usually. I think that's true almost across, across the board. But a person can be in hospice and then independently of hospice, the, the, two, the two doctors, 
so two doctors are required in this process, uh, will we'll go through all, all of the requirements that we talked about uh, earlier uh, in, in order to initiate uh, the, the process of medical aid in, in dying. So hospice then is not involved in that actual event. So I hope that's clear. I don't. I don't want to be uh, accused of <laughs> of putting hospice on the hook here. Uh, but let let me say one additional thing about about hospice. And I and I checked on this yesterday, as a matter of fact, with a doctor friend of mine who uh, does hospice work and is also an expert on some some other things. But unfortunately. Uh, the average stay in hospice is only two weeks, only two weeks. And the tragedy of this is that hospice operates on the same six-month module so that people who are enrollees in uh, Medicare uh, are eligible to be in, in hospice if they have a terminal illness. Again, the diagnosis is this six-month time frame. This is what Medicare requires. Uh, but people, for some reason or another, I think because they don't know that this is possible, wait far, far too long as a disease takes its course before they, before they enter hospice. And my doctor friend just laments this and says, you know, Mike, <laughs> tell people they can get in hospice much earlier than, <laughs> than they may think. Uh, talk to your doctor about hospice and get into it if you have a terminal illness. So the two are separate, uh, but they can be combined in the sense that a person uh, is, is eligible for MAID while in hospice and still can receive hospice care at the same time. And my own wife was in hospice actually for seven months. She had Alzheimer's. Uh, it was renewed, but we knew that the end was coming. Okay, well, I wanted to get to those states where there is not uh, medical aid in dying legislation, and we're talking about 40 states uh, here, and are there options then that patients would have, end-of-life options, if they lived in a state that does not allow medical aid in dying? Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, the obvious one that, that I am aware of and have uh, seen many, many, many times in my career is that people who are dying simply request that all uh, life-sustaining medication be stopped. You, every individual in every state has the, has the right to stop treatment if they have decided that they don't want it any longer. So you withdraw the medication um, so as not to, not to prolong your life. I often tell the, the story of a friend of mine, Helen, who was dying of bone marrow cancer and was hooked up to all kinds of tubes because the doctor had insisted upon this. And she kept pleading with him to take the tubes out so, so she could die. And I was, I was with her uh, on one occasion when the doctor came into the room she had wasted away to practically nothing. She was, she was literally skin and bones. You could see her bones in her body, and she could hardly speak. But boy, she came to life, and she swore at the doctor, and she said, you know, take these bleep, bleep, bleep tubes out of me. I want to die. And he said, you would have me interfere with, you would have me interfere with the course of life? And she said, you are interfering. Take these tubes out. So you have that possibility to end your life uh, by withdrawing medication. The other thing that I want to talk about, and we'll, we'll uh, spend some, a little bit of time on this, I hope, is that 
you have the option in every state of what is called VSED, uh, voluntary suspension of eating and, and drinking. Um, so I, this same doctor who is part of hospice is also an expert on, on VSED. And he assures me that, um, well, let me talk about the process. And the process is that you, you suspend all eating and, and drinking. And what happens, uh, depending upon the basic condition of your body, is that after about two days or so, two and a half days, your organs begin to shut down, particularly, uh, particularly if you are deprived of water. Uh, that's, that's the key to this. It's not so hard to stop eating but it is hard to stop drinking because your lips get parched and your throat is dry and you want relief from that. No sucking on ice cubes because you can take in a lot of water that way, but, but this is the way that it works. Your organs begin to shut down in about two and a half days and the whole process takes probably uh, 10 days to two weeks, sometimes a little bit more, uh, sometimes a little bit less. Um, but but it happens and it's virtually painless and in the process it's good to have a doctor uh, av available who maybe can give you a morphine drip or some kind of, of medication if there's any pain as associated with this. Um, so, well, we, we may remember, I think we talked about this once, uh, we may may remember the story of Diane Rehm and her husband John, who was dying of Parkinson's disease, who who did VSED, and um, though though we we wish there were other ways of doing this, uh, this is one one method that that can be used. I was also wondering about palliative sedation, as you were talking about the morphine drip in connection with a patient who uh, chooses uh, VSED, is palliative sedation, would that be a part of a VSED or could it be also something separate for a patient? Well, sure, it, it could be part of a, uh, someone who chooses VSED. Um, it, it can also be used with somebody who has withdrawn all other medications. It can also be used in MAID, uh, medical aid in dying. Um, you know, there, there can be palliative uh, care in that process as well, certainly. Okay. And I understand now that there is a proposal that is being considered, I don't know if it's in those states already, where medical aid in dying are legal. It's called Supplemental Advanced Directive for Dementia Care. I guess the acronym is SADD, S-A-D-D. Tell us about that. What, what is that? Well, this is an innovative program that can be used for patients who are developing dementia. And it works like this, that if, if you have been diagnosed with, with the onset of Alzheimer's, but are you, you are, are still mentally competent, you can use this supplemental form to to indicate what your wishes are. So we come back to the advanced directive materials that we, that we talked about. The only difference here is that you are, you are issuing a directive and, and giving another person uh, the ability to implement this directive rather than implementing it yourself. So somebody else has to do it. They're a surrogate uh, in, in the advent that... Um, you you are no longer uh, competent, no longer able to recognize people, no longer able to make decisions, no longer able to uh, uh, recognize anybody. Uh, this is essentially what happened to, to my wife, and she would have signed this in a heartbeat. The difference here is that this is done in advance. So the accusation may be, well, this is not voluntary then, if, if, uh, if a surrogate is making this decision later on. Well, um, my goodness, we, we uh, allow people to have power of attorney uh, 
uh, and make financial decisions for people with dementia. Uh, and so why should this be any why should this be any different? This is an experimental program, really. Uh, the organization that I belong to, FEN, Final Exit Network, is, uh, is very, very adamant that, uh, that this be used, implemented, uh, and it will probably be challenged. But I think it's an exciting possibility, uh, particularly for those people who have been left out. Um, let me add that the fact of the matter is that by 2030, so just, you know, seven or eight years from now, fully 10 million people in this country will have some form of dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, so this is, this is a very, very exciting program to me. I think very controversial probably, but anyway, I'm excited about it. Well, and, and I just wanted to clarify something. So if someone who is in their early stages of dementia and they still have the ability, they know that they have Alzheimer's or some other type of dementia, but they still are fully capable of functioning in life and they would sign this directive so that when they get to a, a point where they can't make decisions, that dementia has extended to a, a point where they are really showing all of the signs of dementia, would they also have the option of, of medical aid in dying? Because the medical aid in dying is very specific about administering your own medication. So I guess I'm curious as to what would be allowed in connection with someone who has dementia signing this, and what would the end-of-life options be for that person? Uh, MAID would not be allowed. Okay. The legislation would not permit that. However, VSED would be, would be allowed, and we come back to the eating and drinking again. And, you know, if, if we had, we could have a whole program talking about this probably, but the withdrawal, the withdrawal of food uh, is, is basic to all of this. Alzheimer's patients, uh, I, I know this from my own experience, uh, simply quit eating uh, at, at a certain point because they don't know how to eat. They, they have lost that capacity. Um, the, the drinking is another matter. Um, that's, that's the hard part again. And that's why VSED is the, the form that is, uh, in place in the sump supplemental directive. So you do the, the person, the dementia patient, uh, at the point where there is still competency, mental competency, uh, has to make the decisions, uh, particularly regarding eating and drinking. And this is written in to to the directive, very, very, very specifically. It's all, it's all there. That's very helpful in terms of clarifying what the options are in connection with, with this directive. We're getting close to the end of the interview, but I did want to ask you about, you mentioned FEN, Final Exit Network. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about, I'm assuming this is one of the organizations that does provide information about MAID and other uh, end-of-life options. Talk a little bit more about FEN and other organizations that um, our listeners could um, look up if they were interested in this topic. Yeah, they, they should look up FEN. You can um, type it into the internet, Google it, and you will get information. Final Exit Network is, is one of the organizations uh, under the rubric of death with with dignity, and it's an organization uh, whose mission is to educate individuals um, on the practical, peaceful ways to end their lives. Um, in and they offer compassionate support in that process. There are people in uh, all. All, the, all of the states in the District of Columbia who can be, um, they're called doulas, can be with people, who, 
when they are in the process of dying and provide the, the support. Fen, like Compassion and Choices, which is another organization, uh, believes that any competent person uh, who is unbearably suffering from some kind of medical condition should have the option to die uh, legally and peacefully and with, with dignity. And so I'm part of the Speakers Bureau and I talk to people, go around and make speeches uh, about advanced directives and now this new thing about the supplemental uh, form that they can, the dementia supplemental form that people can, can participate in and encourage people to do it. Where we, where we talk about a choice, a choice. Uh, Fenn is, is adamant, and so am I, that this is all about choice. What people are doing when they participate in one of these programs is choose the timing of their death. Uh, the, the disease or whatever the medical condition is has, has already determined that death is inevitable. So let's get our heads around that. It's, it's very, very important uh, that it is the disease doing the killing. All we are doing is choosing the timing. It's the timing and hopefully shortening the period of incredible suffering, which I think is the compassionate, the very compassionate and loving thing to do. It's an act of love as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's an excellent way to close this very important program. And I really do want to thank you, Reverend Michael Morris, retired minister with the United Church of Christ, for joining me today. Thank you so much. If our listeners want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio and the TV show content that we have produced over the last five years, in addition to the Aging Matters podcast on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. More information about that company can be found at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.